Have a holly jolly Christmas It's the best time of the year Welcome in to another edition of Great Things Are Happening in Columbia Township. With us today are Trustee President Dave Kabicki and Township Administrator Melissa Taylor. We've got two special guests with us today. And, of course, we want to wish everybody a happy holiday as this is our last podcast for the 2021 year. Dave? Oh, thank you, Richard. Uh, today we have two very, very important guests with us today. Uh, they run our fire and EMS services in the two fire departments that service all of Columbia Township. And in case some of you don't know, we have nine geographic islands in Columbia Township, uh, all the way from the easternmost side to the westernmost side are about 20 minutes apart. Uh, so one of our neighborhoods is up near Amberley Village, and we have some homes that are up over closer to Camp Denison and Milford. So it's a long, long range. So because of that, we actually contract with one fire department, the Deer Park Silverton Fire Department, to handle our westernmost part of our, our township. And to handle the central and easternmost part is our Little Miami Fire District. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to our administrator, Melissa Taylor, to give a brief intro to our two fire chiefs. Well, I'm really excited today to introduce two people who are, as we've said, are very important to all of our community members. First, I want to introduce Chief Denny Meter, who is the chief of the Deer Park Silverton Fire and Rescue District. Thank you for being here this morning. My pleasure. And then I'm also going to introduce Chief Mike Sifke, who is the new chief of the Little Miami Joint Fire and Rescue District. And in a minute, I want to ask each of you to tell us about your, your history and some interesting things about your experiences in, in the fire and EMS um, profession. But I want to say to you, Chief Sipsky, I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you in our recent interviews, but uh, my family has been the beneficiary of having such a phenomenal fire and EMS district. We had a life-threatening um, injury and we have a family member today who was alive thanks to the very quick and experienced efforts of the little miami fire district so i have a personal relationship with your district that's awesome so let's start with with chief meter uh and uh tell us about your how you came to be in the profession and some interesting things about your life in it uh so i'm actually a third generation firefighter uh my grandfather was a firefighter volunteer over in kentucky uh, my dad was on the Silverton Volunteer Fire Department throughout the 70s and 80s, and, and actually he's still with us. Uh, he's going to run for a few more months. Next July, he'll be at 50 years, and then he said he's wow. going to hang it up. So uh, that's a pretty big event for him. Uh, so I started uh, just a little over 25 years ago. Uh, obviously, it's in the, the family history to, get, uh, to, to be in the fire service. But also being from a small community like Silverton, I saw it as a way to interact with the community, kind of provide a public service. And um, even though it was volunteer, it really kind of, I, I caught that bug and I had to keep doing it. So I was able to work my way through part-time ranks, full-time ranks, uh, eventually uh, became fire chief for the fire district. And that's, uh, I'll be in my seventh year starting in February. Chief Sifke? Well, actually Mike started to uh Approximately 30 years ago, uh, I started as well as a volunteer. Um, then left the volunteer agency to go part-time. Uh, worked part-time through no different than chief meter and went went to full-time. Spent the last 14 years as an assistant chief prior to the uh, promotion of uh, the opportunity to be the chief of Little Miami. One of the things I recall also 
from the recent recruitment for you is that you have time in the private sector. I do. I've spent 20 years uh, in the private sector owning a business, uh, which developed some of those uh, those business skills. Uh, we ran a, an operation out of two cities, so that uh, lends well for, for the roles and responsibilities. And as a board member, I'm a board member as well as trustee vice president Brian uh, Lamar, um, we really appreciate the business perspective that you brought because that's the piece that, that we're, we're called on to be mindful and to provide oversight well, absolutely. for. Absolutely. And just, uh, just kind of coming down to the public, about how many runs does a fire station make? I would say about a per day, but just let's just talk about per year. Danny, how, how many runs does your station make per year and with how many men? Uh, so on average, we uh, respond to about 2,300 calls a year, 80% mm-hmm. of those being medical emergencies. Uh, and we do that out of one station, generally with five people on duty at one time. So there really aren't that many fires anymore. The fires have actually been decreasing across the country since the 70s. Uh, better prevention, smoke detectors, better fire alarm codes. systems, building codes. Mm-hmm. It's really contributed to a drop. Um, so out of the 20% of runs that aren't dedicated to EMS, um, maybe less than 5% are actually true structure fires. And Chief Sipke, uh, out of the Fairfax Little Miami Fire Station, about how many runs do you guys do a year, and how many men cover those? Well, between the station, the two stations that we currently operate, we actually run about 2,000 calls a year. And to share with Chief Meter, 80, 80 to 85% of our calls are EMS-driven. Okay. And so typically, I guess I'll throw this back to you, Chief Sivke. So uh, the, the buzzer goes off, or, or any of you guys can fill in on this, a buzzer goes off. Tell me what, what happens. You hear what and what happens. I mean, what does it sound like when, when 911, somebody dials 911, what do you guys hear? Well, when 911 calls, we get the notifications at stations. The stations will uh, alert the station system. In our case, we have buzzers and lights that go off which then notifies the crews and the crews then respond. That usually takes less than uh, 60 seconds from the call to our notifications. The county system has improved over the past few years to reduce that uh, time between phone call to notification. So you guys get the call and then the decision's made of what, what, what equipment to send out. It's based off the type of uh, emergency response that's called in. And based off, we put together uh, plans ahead of time uh chief meter myself we both do it for bo- or both agencies um, that the communication center has these response plans with these apparatus specific which then they load that into their computer system and then our notifications are made and chief meter i'm just curious if you guys do 2300 runs i mean how many of those are false alarms you just and and, and how does that come to be so um I don't have the numbers in front of me on the number of false alarms, but um, there's a, I'd say 15% of that 20% would fall into the range of alarm drops at your residence, uh, false alarms at businesses. Uh, it could be anything from uh, a power outage causes the alarm to go off, or it could be a faulty system. Um, so as uh, Chief Sifke said, we try to gear our responses towards what that dispatch is, so we're not sending too much equipment out we always want to keep back, something back in reserve if we can. So, for example, we have um, uh, some larger buildings in our area that are nursing homes, uh, schools, large apartment buildings. On those type of runs, we actually ask for more equipment on an alarm drop, even if it turns out to be a false alarm, because there's a greater chance for a life safety issue. But in our single-family residences, um, you know, your typical house on the street, 
if there's a fire alarm, we only send one engine down because 99% of the time it actually is a false alarm. 99% of the time re- residential? Due, due to cooking, uh, maybe some smoke off the, the bacon that morning, or a lot of times we'll get uh, steam from the shower, sets the alarm off. So historically speaking, we know that that's not typically a true emergency run. But because of the dispatch center and the communications involved, if we do hear that it is actually something while we're in route, we can get resources on the road right away. So the, the delay in actually getting the extra resources won't hurt us too badly. Got it. And as you guys are coaching your teams, and I mean, I guess in terms of what you want them to do, I suppose getting out the door quickly has got to be one of the number one things as far as that that, that buzzer rings. How quickly can you get there? Well, I, I think uh, speaking for myself, I do watch the times from response time from notification to out the door time. And we certainly try to keep them down to a minimum. Um, you know, we always have shoot for the goal of uh, 60 and 80 seconds, for, uh, respectively, for EMS and fire. So we watch the times so that there's no lag. And it's, it's the same at our department. Uh, we preach to the, to the people on station that you're there to make the runs. So when that alarm drops, get out to your apparatus and, and hit the road. Um, you can't make up lost time by speeding. Even with red lights and sirens, your time is, if you lose time in the station, you're never going to make it back up. So if you really want to get your response times down, you have to get out of bed, get up from the lunch table, <laughs> get to your truck right away. That's where you save time. And that's the reason why we have staff stations is so we can cut down the time frame to uh, make emergency response. And it's interesting, too, uh, knowing a lot of firefighters, I mean, the misnomer that people just sit around, the, the, fire, uh, the firemen and, and all the personnel that you guys work with, they like to make runs. They don't just want to be, be sitting there idle, correct? Correct. I mean, uh, our staff, they, they rather go out and, and make calls. That's what they, they're they here to do. Um, when they have idle time, um, it's essentially they're bored, um, keeping them engaged, uh, making calls and providing services to the community. There's uh, time set aside every day for training, um, which is important. It keeps up our skills. Um, as, so right now, this time of year, our new protocols for EMS come out. So our troops have been training on that, make sure they're up to speed. But you can only train so much during the day. It, even that kind of gets boring after a while. So having a department that's busy, as, as Chief Sifiki says, does keep the, uh, the personnel interested. It keeps them alert. It keeps them active. And quite frankly, it also helps keep their skills up. And, and one other thing, too, again, I'm just trying to think what in, would be interesting to our constituents. But, I mean, what are the busiest times of day? I mean, because, I, mean, I mean, you would think it would be, you know, after work or what have you is it eight to five five to nine midnight to four o'clock in the morning what's the busiest and what's the slowest times well uh as i studied our data um the numbers really there is no jump out say a specific time from what i've seen there's a small uptick around the two to six p.m but uh that's not consistent if you look at the same data across days so it's it does get a little slower in the evening based off population but generally speaking there's no jump out uh far as a data piece that says this is the time is that the same thing you're seeing denny in our district we do send uh tend to see an increase from about nine in the morning through six at night uh so we've we've been collecting data for years just to kind of analyze what the trends are in the service and if you chart it out in a graph you can actually see a, a, a curve that goes up through that time period our slowest time is probably from about uh, 1 a.m. To, to 6 a.m. Uh, in terms of fire, though, that's when you typically have your, your uh, say, your your worst calls or your um, 
a good way to say it. They're more significant is the way to say it uh, because you're dealing with people that are asleep. They might not notice something's wrong right away. So we see our, our worst incidents at night when people are asleep versus daytime when people are awake. They kind of are aware of their surroundings. They can call us faster. And what about by season? I mean, is there holidays where you know people are out goofing around on the weekends and are getting hurt? Weekend warriors, you know, playing sports. I mean, is there a time of the year that's a little more, um, what I would say, injurious uh, than others? <laughs> I would think it's it's fair to say that uh, the outdoor sports, outdoor times of entertainment, where there's there's other influences that provide bad decisions it's generally in the, the I, I always summer. say bad decisions lead to great stories but go ahead but that's that's kind of where the, where I see the the significant change the um, our trends don't uh, much differ from yours uh, this time of year we'll see more of the heating incidents um, we put out a, uh, a reminder every Thanksgiving don't fry your turkey on your deck don't fry it in your garage um, it's, it tastes great, but you don't want to see us there on, on Thanksgiving. What morning. about Christmas trees? Do they burn anymore, or is that is that is that ever a big problem, or not really? I, I don't see that. Generally we speaking. haven't seen it. Um, I can only anecdotally tell you that years ago, one of the residents thought uh, it'd be wise to burn a Christmas tree in the chimney in the fireplace. So they took it and stuffed it all the way in the fireplace. Uh, so it, it didn't work out really well for them. But bad decisions are great bad, stories, yeah, bad, and that's, exactly, a, that's a great exactly. story. That is insane. That sounds like something on the rusty, the Griswolds. Hey, a reminder, to find out all the great things that are happening in Columbia Township, just visit the website, columbiatownship.org. That's columbiatwp.org. And to find previous podcasts in this series, be sure to go to your favorite uh, provider, iHeart, SoundCloud, Spotify. You know the drill. Be, go, be searching the words, great things are happening in Columbia Township. We'll continue with more great things are happening in Columbia Township. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hop, happy. Season of all with those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. It's the happiest season of all. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Welcome back into Great Things Are Happening in Columbia Township. With us is Township Administrator Melissa Taylor and Trustee President Dave Kubicki and our special guest, Dave. Yes, uh, we're here with our two fire chiefs that uh, handle all the EMS and fire throughout the entire community. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's so costly to run these fire departments because of the cost of equipment and obviously the personnel. You have to have, you know, four to six people or however many people on call 24-7. So it's very costly to do. And some people have volunteer models. Some people have part-time models where it's virtually the entire department is part-timers. And then some of them have full-time models. And so people say you should go – if people were to say you should try the volunteer model – what would be your argument of why we shouldn't do that? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Either one of you guys could field that one. So I myself came out of the volunteer model, started as a uh, Silverton volunteer uh, back in 96. 
And we had a great department, a lot of dedicated people. Uh, but just up the road from us was the city of Deer Park that had the same equipment, the same fire trucks, another great group of dedicated people. Uh, so we were seeing some some cost overlap that was, you know, very expensive to, to house these two stations. And as time progressed, because you're relying on volunteers, many of whom have 40-hour work week jobs, you know, real jobs, so to speak, uh, we didn't have coverage during the daytime hours. So from six in the morning till usually six at night, we started implementing a part-time program. So there was at least two people on duty during the day. And then from six in the evening till six in the morning, weekdays, and then 24 hours on Saturday and Sunday, the response was whoever was, was home. Um, and that really hurt us in terms of, of trying to get fast response times, particularly in, in medical emergencies. Um, when we were alerted to a run, we would come from home, go get a truck, which sometimes took up to five minutes to get out the door, another five minutes to get a response time uh, to actually get on the scene. So when you're talking having people that, especially on the medical side of things, where you know it's a stroke or a heart attack or, or, or trouble breathing, that time frame really is huge. So, but, but we talked about before when the buzzer rings and you guys got guys that you know slide down the poles or whatever they they do these days. When you get a part timer, that buzzer rings. You they actually notify people that are at home and they have to go back to the station and get the equipment. Is that the way that works? In our in our instance, there was nobody at the station. Yeah, the volunteer and system. They weren't at yeah, the station. There was nobody there. It's inter- interesting just seeing that certain communities still accept that as a model, and yet another community would say the response time is so critical. I mean, it's just interesting the dichotomy of those two situations. Well, David, I think that's what Deer Park and Silverton saw was, one, we couldn't get out the door fast enough. That was an issue. But we also couldn't provide paramedic service to our residents, and we felt that that was something that we could offer that would – help us combine and that was kind of the the selling point for why we did it 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 wasn't because we were making so many fires it was because we were making so many ems runs so when we merged the the two fire departments it was a challenge there were some political issues um wasn't there always are it it wasn't it wasn't (laughs) the uh, slam dunk everybody thought it was but what we were able to provide was a, a new service and and quite frankly when we merged and formed a district the taxes on the residents went up. When you say political issues, I mean, what, what does that look like? I mean, what, what, what's the drama that goes behind uh, when you say political issues? There is a, I think fire departments more so than any other public service, there is an emotional attachment to seeing your community's name on the side of a fire truck. And people, rightly or wrongly, think that if you form a district or contract with somebody else, that you're going to lose your community control over a safety service. Um, and that was a hard sell uh, between the, the t- two communities. Once we got over to that that hump, uh, even some of the naysayers from our initial merger became huge supporters. Once You've they, proven them wrong. Yeah, once, we, once they saw that there was a value to what we were doing, and even though it cost them a little bit more in taxes, the fact that we were there immediately to respond versus a five-minute lag time to get out the door. I mean, we, we showed that it was a, a value to the community, and I can't ever imagine going back to a, a volunteer system, not because the people weren't dedicated, but the residents, they expect and they deserve high-quality service. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the political issue there, and, and I go look and think, in a vacuum, everybody wants their community name on their truck. 
But if you said, all right, here are the options, you can have three names on a truck and you won't have a raise in taxes, I think that that changes the equation. So it's it's how the questions are asked. I mean, do you want your name on your fire truck and you want a million-dollar tax increase, or would you rather share the services with others? So that, that's just my experience of what I'm seeing. My experience is very similar as far as uh, Chief Meter as it relates to the timing, uh, response timing of volunteers. We um, we had the same exact thing. I think that's how all, all paid systems got started was when they've recognized the f- lack of uh, response time and lack of staffing during those uh, early morning times. Again, so, 0600 to 1800, that's pretty typical. Uh, unfortunately, in my time, or fortunately, in, in my experience, uh, with the one agency I worked with, the um, it wasn't a district, so we, we focused on on our agency and developing our agency for the exact same reasons that the district, uh, as Chief Meter stated, was developed. Response times, time is muscle. We've got to get to uh, Mrs. Smith, Grandma Smith, within four to six minutes because that's all muscle, and that's extremely important. That that's that's really the focus of what we do. Well, I've been an administrator or been in administration, public administration for 35 years, and I have seen changes in the public's expectation over what they will and will not accept and what they will pay for and what they will not pay for. So um, I know there's, what, 44 um, communities in Hamilton County, 42 to 44 communities, probably close to that with the fire districts, fire departments. And is that a sustainable model? Because that's going to be another big conversation among all the communities. There are currently 37 fire jurisdictions in Hamilton County. Um, my outlook for the future is that it's just not a sustainable model to have that many. Uh, Why do you say it's not sustainable to have that many? Because we have to keep going back to the taxpayers asking for more funding to keep our operations afloat. And if three or four communities can join together and share resources, be it through a district or a contract, they would be able to in the long run, I think, save some of that overhead costs that they wouldn't have to go back to the taxpayers right away. Um, you know, we're always looking for ways to stretch our dollar, and contracting services with other communities has allowed us to not have to go back for a levy right away. Um, I don't know if it'll be my career, probably not, but if we could, if you can whittle it down from 37 jurisdictions to even six or eight or 10 larger jurisdictions. Again, we can probably provide better service, not as much capital for equipment and stations, probably even better response times in some areas. I would agree. I would uh, I actually support that because of the fact that you're reducing the administrative overha- overhead costs. You're reducing the re- uh, redundancy of resources. You can actually put more staffing within one facility, and you can also develop more of a technical um, technical training um, elements that are geared towards the areas you're serving because we're all trying to do – um, have to be masters of everything. We've got to be good at everything we do. But with a district or with a larger group, you can actually start to uh, tailor specific tasks and specific technical trainings to a geographical area which would use that resource most likely. But uh, again, we use the word politics, I'd say emotions, and obviously people protecting their own fiefdom or whatever you want to say. That's what's battling that. But logic would say that what you said makes sense, the consolidation, because of the cost of the labor and the and the equipment, fire equipment is so costly. I mean, so expensive. Yeah. Our, our staff is the most expensive line item, and they're our most important piece of yes, what we Yes, they are. Do. 
So that is that has to be our number one focus. As well. and, and speaking of uh, your 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 staff, is, with the shortage of getting people to work anywhere, is it getting harder to staff both the, you know filling them with part timers and full timers? Is it hard to find um, firemen? And I, Chief Meter and I are looking at each other, shaking our heads. Absolutely. This is a challenging time for us uh, through our careers. We have ha- been involved in many hiring processes uh, where we facilitated them and had a, a, a plethora of, of uh, applicants uh, to, to, to our current today's challenges where it's, it's significantly reduced. And finding qualified candidates are also very challenging. I don't know if Chief Meter wants to jump in on that. It, we're running into the same thing uh, in our hiring processes. But it's not just a, a county issue, even regional issue. This really extends to the whole state. Um, it, as Chief Zivsky, you can tell you, he uh, was up at a program uh, sponsored by the Ohio Fire Chiefs called the Ohio Fire Executive Program. Um, he's a graduate. I'm currently in the class now. These are challenges that we're seeing across the entire state, from small departments like ours uh, to larger cities like Akron and Cleveland. They are having trouble recruiting candidates to come in. Um, I don't know all the the reasons why, but it just seems like that this section of public service isn't as shiny as it used to be. It, uh, we're all facing that same crisis. If someone wants, if someone's listening today because this is put out on like 15 plus national platforms. Someone, yeah, we, we go big here. That's huge, uh, huge. If someone who is listening in our region is interested in sitting in your seat. Where would they even start? How would they? Would they? How do you even start? How do you have to get a certification and then approach a fire district, or can you approach a fire district and then we help with those certifications? How do you even start? It depends on the the agency. So, for example, City of Cincinnati works off a civil service testing program. When they when they test for recruits, you don't have to have any certification whatsoever. Uh, you can come in right off the street, take the test, and if you score well enough, you interview, pass all that. They will train you from nothing to the level of firefighter uh, EMT at a minimum. For our jurisdictions and Little Miami's jurisdiction, exactly, yeah, we don't have the resources nor the time to dedicate six, eight, ten months into training somebody. So we, at a minimum, ask them to have their fire certification and, generally speaking, their paramedic certification. Um, so that does put a burden on on our our candidate pool. Um, but if someone wants to if start that wants process, to start, really they... the, the best place to go is if, first off, contact your, your fire department, your jurisdiction. And so contact you, there's a great Chief resource Leader, there. You, Chief Sitzke, at the, at the fire district. Sure. But you just say, I want to start this. Yeah. How, how would I start? Um, we're always happy to, to get people started. But really, the, the trade schools and uh, community colleges are the ones that are going to have the classes that they can take. So I kind of look at the people coming into us much like you would look at a, a, a teacher applying at a high school. You, you don't go apply at a high school and then they hire you, then they teach you how to be a teacher. You already have your certifications. We look at it the same way. We're looking for these people that have gotten what they need to get into the field, and then we'll, we'll hire them afterwards. But Cincinnati State's a great uh, mm-hmm. college. Uh, Scarlet Oaks. Scarlet Oaks system. Oaks system. So people can go online, see what it takes, Absolutely. plug mm-hmm. in, and then come Absolutely. our way. And I yeah. really think that uh, taking the time to talk to uh, call myself or Chief uh, Sifke, uh, come to the firehouse and see what it's about. I think it's a, a huge way to at least see what we do. And, again, we have all the resources. We have the success stories that we can point them in the right direction. And right. It's a, it's, it's a good start. So the Little Miami Fire District 
uh, firehouses on Worcester yes. Pike in Fairfax. And Deer Park Silverton Fire District is on uh, Blue Ash Road. Uh, yeah, it's the intersection of uh, Plainfield Road and Blue Ash, Blue right? Ash. The split. So bring it on, guys. There you go. And I want to go thank you guys as well as your whole team, everybody that services our community, because when all of us are running away from danger, you guys have to run into danger and never want to lose sight for that. So thank you for your efforts. And last question for both of you guys, just as we look, and I'll start with you, Denny, and then we'll finish with Chief Sifke after that. But uh, what what do you see coming in 2022, and what are your goals or unique challenges you see coming for the Deer Park Silverton uh, fire team? Well, part of our, our new challenge next year is going to be uh, the new areas of Columbia Township that we're going to be working with, uh, the Ridgewood residents and the Ridge and Highland Business District especially. Uh, so we're going to be working really hard to, to get out and meet the community members, make sure that we understand what their expectations are, what their service needs are, and uh, just try to be good community partners and uh, keep moving, moving the fire service forward. Okay. And what would be yours? Well, for me... Um being a new chief in the district, it's really start to build the relationships with the, within the organization and with uh, the members of the department, also with the uh, the community. Let's sp- spend some time with them to, to build those relationships, develop them, uh, and then also work towards the changes for us as it relates to um, the services that we provide up towards the Ridge and Highland area that uh, Chief Meter will then be taking over. So it's really kind of getting my hands wrapped around that and then uh, kind of giving our, our folks uh, some vision, some mission, and some goals uh, as we move forward. And I know you guys had a nice little event, speaking of which, community outreach this past weekend. You had breakfast with Santa. How, sure was that, how was that attended? That was actually extre- attended extremely well. There was uh, an element uh, where there were folks standing around waiting for seats because all the seats were taken. Um, the community just came out. It was just an exciting time for us. It was really a pleasure to see ho 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 that's right a reminder to listen to all the podcasts in this series just go to your favorite podcast provider soundcloud spotify iheart so many others to find out all the great things that are happening in columbia township as well go to the website columbiatwp.org we thank you for listening you've been listening to great things are happening in columbia township a merry little christmas let your heart be Next year all our troubles will be out of sight Have yourself a merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide Next year all our troubles